Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is indeed Mornings with Carmen. It is the Mornings Without Carmen version, as you know, if you've been listening these last couple of weeks. It's been delightful to be in the host chair with all of you. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in as Carmen is away and got a great text from her last night, a fun uh, family picture text. She sure is having a good time away, and I know she's looking forward to being back in the host chair with all of you next Monday. But it has been great to get up in the morning, grab our coffee, start some conversations that focus on our faith, a great uh, encouraging way to start the day. And uh, part of the the thing that I'm always intrigued with is what day it might be from a national day standpoint. And of course, Paul Perot, who you know, and chimes in uh, occasionally here on the morning show, right? He always tells me what national day we have. And today is National Fudge Day. Mm. And uh, and Paul and I are at a bit of a loggerhead about fudge itself. And so we're probably going to need some help from all of you in terms of sorting this out. But I would suggest, Paul, that fudge actually functions a bit like sin. Okay. And that and, and, your, and, your and that theological fudge, argument is and, and that fudge looks great from the outside, and it may even be tempting, and you might even want to engage with it. But there's never a time after I'm done eating fudge that I think that was an awesome experience. It, it masquerades as as the true sort of dessert, as the true pudding, as it might be said overseas. It looks great on the outside, uh, but inside it's it's filled with dead men's bones. Um, no, we, here's the theological disagreement I have. I, I see it as a problem of our fallen nature as humans. We cannot handle the glory <laughs> of fudge because it just causes us to, I, I don't know, it, it, we just can't handle the weight of the glory of fudge. Well, so. I, uh, <laughs> if you're listening this morning, I would love to uh, have you maybe help settle this dispute. Convince me perhaps that fudge is a worthwhile dessert to eat, 877-933-2484. I know that many times we have a family cottage uh, in my wife Hallie's generational lineage that's in the northern part of Michigan, and we often travel some 45 minutes from that cottage to Mackinac Island, Mm -hmm. which would be the home of all things fudge. And every time we go, maybe, maybe I'm sort of... Um, stupefied by the horses and by the island, uh, just the atmosphere. And so they have all these fudge shops, and we always bring it home. Many different versions of it. Never tasted a single version of fudge that I was satisfied with. So, Paul, I just want to end our time here this morning with this. It is a really important verse in the scriptures. It is no fudge has overtaken you, but such is common (laughs) to man. And God is faithful, Paul. He will not allow you to eat that fudge beyond what you're able, but will provide a way of escape. Every time it is there. So first captioner what now? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's not the actual Greek language of the New Testament, but it is delightful to be with you this morning. Uh, Up first in just a moment, we're going to welcome a new friend into the program. That being David Koizis, who's a global scholar out of Canada. And he has written a great series of articles about how to weave our way through the culture wars in a faithful way.
Welcome back to the show this morning and glad to be joined by David Coises, who is part of the Global Scholars of Canada. He is the author of Political Visions and Illusions, as well as We Answer to Another Authority Office in the Image of God. He's got a lot of different books. He's taught politics. He has been engaged in the scene, specifically releasing a series of articles about culture wars over the past couple of months. And I really highly recommend just sort of diving into this. And we'll give a preview of that this morning. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you? Well, it's uh, great to be with you. I don't know if you can help settle the dispute between Paul and I. And uh, David, clearly fudge is something that is, does not come from the kingdom of, uh, of God, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, I, I, I hate to disappoint you, but I've, I've never really been a, fi- a fan of chocolate at all. So I, oh, so, not... so you're what? out altogether. Yeah, well, you know, I think... I guess I'm the equivalent of an agnostic. Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that would be uh, consistent with some of what you've written here, which I really appreciate, is, is how, do we, how do we get into the culture war? but stay above them somehow, David, as believers. And uh, I'll give the the listeners here a link to where they can read some of your work. It's called byzantinecalvinist.blogspot.com. That's byzantinecalvinist.blogspot.com. I'll probably ask you after the break about what it means to be a Byzantine Calvinist. But let's get into this, uh, these series of articles that you've written. And you talked a bit at the front end as we're fighting as different nations about what is the best way to conduct ourselves as a nation. Who are we? What values to, do we hold to? You talk uh, quite a bit about the idea of getting along while agreeing to disagree. So tell us a little bit more about that, and then I have a few follow-ups from there. Yes. Uh, I, I think in the last 20 years in particular, I think uh, North America and the United States in particular, I'm living in Canada right now, but I was born in the United States, not too far from Chicago. I think the country has become more politically and culturally divided. This is something that has been gathering force for quite a number of of years now. I I grew up in the 1960s, and I could see some of the beginnings of that starting um, even at that time. And I think uh, in many respects, the United States has been divided into into two cultures that see things from very different, uh, different perspectives. And I think the divisions have gotten worse over the last 20 years. Um, especially since the 2000 election, uh, which I thought was uh, was conducted fairly um, um, in a fairly gentlemanly uh, manner, uh, elections since then have not been nearly um, conducted in, in quite such a way. So I, I think I think what we're what we're seeing now are, are rather extreme polarizations taking place in the United States, uh, other countries as well, but I've noticed it more in the United States. Yeah, I I noted with interest maybe a few years ago as I was teaching one of my classes on these kinds of subjects, David, that the people began to change the language in terms of how they approached one another if they were across a political divide. And it used to be, well, we have philosophical differences might be the phrase that was being used. And that was the tension that kind of held us together. And we would push and pull and negotiate and tug and then maybe uh, grab a dinner afterwards together. We still saw ourselves as part of the same country, even though there was a lot of tension and philosophical differences. But when the language moved from that phrase, philosophical differences, to a moralization of good and evil of the other side, we talked about that in my class that day and said th- this can set sort of a future in which we now have nothing to do with one another. When, as soon as you moralize the other side as good or as evil, and both sides are doing it, then, well, who, who wants to do business with evil? Of course, nobody. And so you seek to drive each other out. Are you seeing some, some of the same kinds of things from your perch that we, we've moved from a place of holding attention to seeking to drive each other out? 
Yes, uh, I think that's true, and I think that's that's very it's very sad to see that, because if people are not willing to cooperate with each other across um, ideological boundaries uh, for for political purposes and for for um, uh, doing public justice within the larger country, then I then I think it's it's going to be very difficult for us to. Um, uh, to 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 find a way to be able to to be able to hold each other with respect, even as we may disagree, and I think that's the that's key. We may disagree with people, but if if we if we put each other down, if we don't hold each other with uh, with with respect, then um, um, you know I, I hate to say that that the United States might be heading towards civil war, but if people are not willing to talk with each other, if they're not willing to to sit down, hear each other out, not just a Attach labels to people and to dismiss them on the basis of those labels, then it's it's very difficult to see what the the future might hold. Yeah, I did note with interest here recently that among the many people that seem to be sort of saddling up, as it were, was the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying that he had formed a super PAC politically to take over everything in the upcoming 2022 and then 20. For elections, and he he used the analogy of riding on a horse, and the cavalry is coming in, in in terms of trying to just take the other side out altogether. And I'm curious, as we try to walk away from the brink of that a little bit, how do we as believers who do hold fast to a certain set of of moral principles that we believe are consistent with God's kingdom, things like abortion or things like LBGTQ conversations, where maybe we really do see that is inconsistent with God's kingdom? How do we then still respect the other side? Can we respect the other side? What are we called to do in the midst uh, of those kinds of issues when it's not just about, well, more taxes or less taxes or some other thing that we could maybe argue about a bit, but we are talking about moralization here on some level. Well, yes, I th- I, that that is true. But I th- I think um, you know if, if if we are going to cooperate with others, we need to do it on the basis of the principles that that we hold to, and try to appeal to the other side on the basis of of of, of shared principles. Now, we may not share all the principles, but it, it for for the purposes of getting along, it's good to emphasize those things that we do have in common, rather than always to emphasize. The, the the divisiveness uh, to to em- emphasize what what we don't have in common because if we don't find shared principles uh, it's it's going to be very difficult for us to find a um, uh, um, uh, a, a way to to do justice within the context of a political community yeah I think that's very helpful David we're going to take a short break and when we come back I'm going to ask you just a little bit even about how Christians can maybe shine a light in a culture they don't necessarily have to seek all of the echelons of of power and authority in Washington, D.C., within the freedoms that we have, we can definitely persuade through shining a different kind of light without necessarily having to exert power from some of those places. So I'll ask you about that next. It's David Coises with us this morning here on Mornings Without Carmen. Stay with us. A little bit more to come in just a few minutes. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run to borders to be the same. See who I was, I give him away today. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today, and we're having a conversation with David Coises, Global Scholars of Canada, about how we can learn to live with each other again in some ways that maybe takes us away from the brink of where we seem to be headed. And David, we talked a little bit before the break about believers being faithful to a certain way of life, and and that way of life is sometimes inconsistent with other ways of life with people in the same country. And 
I'm curious your thoughts as to what is the best method by which Christians can engage the world. Is it to try to gain a lot of power in Washington, D.C. and exert that power moving forward? Or is it simply the way they live together as faithful communities that maybe persuades from that angle? How, how would you approach that conversation? Well, I think we do have to live faithfully as uh, as a Christian community. And I think there are any number of ways in which we can do that reaching out to our neighbors and trying to um, to help our neighbors when when they are in need i don't want to say that um the seeking power um in washington dc or state capitals or or wherever is is a bad thing it's, it's not but i do think that we need to to um uh, to curtail our expectations of what's that's what what that's going to lead to so seeking power is a way of, of, of doing public justice within the context of a political community. And that's something that we should always want to want to do. Now, seeking power does not mean that we exert all the power or we're chasing all the power in, in, in a nation, because I think what we have to do is to share power with other people who may not think the same way that we do. And in that kind of a context, um, we... we he, have a voice and we expect others to hear our voice uh, but we also listen to other people's voices as well recognizing that we do not have the whole truth and they may have a part of the truth that we do not have so even if we are talking about uh, about um, political service in some fashion it's not just a matter of seeking power but it's a matter of of of, of sharing power with, with others some of whom may agree with us and and others of whom may not but always speaking into a situation uh, uh, from a perspective of doing public justice to our neighbor. Yeah, I think that's a, a terribly helpful perspective, and especially how we see one another, David. You said something intriguing a moment ago there in terms of learning from another person. And we were talking on the program yesterday a little bit about the phrase intellectual honesty, just simply uh, intellectual humility, simply meaning that uh, we recognize that whatever positions we hold can be very important things that we hold, but we hardly ever are seeing the the complete picture. I haven't met a scholar. I haven't met a pastor. I haven't met a person. I haven't met myself that, that has a monopoly on all of the different details of life. And so is one of the things that we can do as a regular practice and habit, simply look at the person across from us and say, hey, I, I know I'm going to disagree in these areas, but I bet I can learn something from this person. And that has a way of starting to bridge some of these divides. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely. And in some ways, when, when we start to to put labels on people, that's a way of, of dismissing them. Because if, if we can pigeonhole them, if we can put them into a category, you know, we have to we have to categorize things because that's simply what we do. You know, our, our minds are made to categorize things and to draw commonalities between things and to differentiate between things. But if you if you simply run with labels and say, oh, you know, you're a socialist or you're a liberal or you're a conservative, it, it can be used as a way to dismiss people. And that's the sort of thing that we need to avoid. Yeah, I think that's terribly helpful, too, on that point in terms of uh, looking at the other side and dismissing them, calling them a socialist. Or if you're on the other side, on the socialist side, I know that people can be dismissed these days by the color of their skin. I was with a pastor friend of mine in the last couple of weeks, and he is a, a he's probably an 82-year-old African-American pastor now at this point. He's been around the block in reconciliation work around our country for generations. He's seen and done just about everything. And, and he said something really powerful that night to my kids. I have five kids. And he looked at me and said that, that some people are going to tell you that, uh, that you are a racist simply because of the color of your skin. And we know that that's not true. 
And and it was such a, a, a profound point that he made. And it doesn't mean we, we don't have a reckoning around racism in our country. But what he was doing is he was creating space saying, I'm not going to dismiss your point of view simply by a characteristic that you have or maybe a philosophical position that you hold. And and if we can't carve out that space, David, I think it's going to be tough to, to stop walking towards this brink where we where we're continue to just sort of be at each other's throats. Yes, that's right. That's right. Moving forward, do you see other things that we can we can sort of walk in as a people that can help uh, bridge some of these divides? Uh, well, I I don't know. What were you thinking of? Well, you you just you have a, a fairly long series of, of blog spots here that some of the the articles right. that you've written about how we can share power and seek to get along with one another, and uh, so just some other principles. Maybe we have a few minutes left here to talk about how we can uh, share power and and walk forward together. Yeah. Well, I keep going back to listening. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us, especially those of us in the professoriate, if, if you will, you know, we're, we're used to talking. We get up in front of the classroom and we talk and talk and talk and try to fill as much time as we can. Of course, there's always going to be discussion and, and so forth. But, uh, but I, I think we need to, we need to, to open our ears. We need, we need to listen to people, to hear what they have to say. Doesn't mean that we shut off, shut off our um, powers of discernment. No, but, but I think we do need to, to hear people out. We need to discuss discuss matters we need to um, uh, um, we need to evaluate what they're saying and we need to um, uh, we need to simply be open to other people one more thought on this David you referenced earlier that some of the seedbeds of where we are today maybe originated in the 1960s and I find it helpful sometimes to try to understand the origin of a certain conflict or strife or a certain way of thinking is there something you can take us into from those 1960s where we see now rippling out so many years later what happened back then Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the 1960s. This is the time that I was growing up, and it was a very troubled, troubling time to be to to be growing up. I saw political assassinations. I saw uh, race riots in the in in the streets. Um, I remember the the um, the the protests over the Vietnam War and so forth. And I think at, I think at that time people came to. Um, uh, came to the point where they were no longer willing to listen, where where they were shouting across barricades, and and that ha- that's happening again today. Uh, today, and I think with the pandemic, with people being shut up in their homes, uh, and some people will pour out into the streets to protest uh, at at various things. And I think we're all a bit on edge at at the moment. And I think once again we need to calm down and and hear each other out. Well, David, if listeners want to check out some of your work, it's a pretty extensive series that you've released called Dampening the Culture Wars. I think it's an important series just to allow ourselves a different way of thinking about how we see one another. Where can people go uh, to reference this? Yes, I, uh, it's on my blog, Notes from a Byzantine Right Calvinist. If you just uh, put that into Google, you'll find it. If I imagine if you put my name, K-O-Y-Z-I-S, or Z-I-S if you're American, <laughs> and uh, put that into Google and, and, and find it, and, and the article should come up. I would be remiss at least not to wrap up with this, David. What is a Byzantine Calvinist? Those, that, those are some pretty <laughs> big words right there. Yes, it's uh, uh, my my father was born in the Greek Orthodox community in Cyprus. Um, I myself am a Reformed Christian. I was raised a Reformed Christian by believing parents were members of a Reformed Church here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So it's it's it, it it's it's just a way of describing myself, a tongue-in-cheek descriptor at most. I love it. Again, if you want to just Google Byzantine Calvinist, you're going to come across a great series called Dampening the Culture Wars. It'd be worth checking it out and reflecting a little bit about how we can get along a little bit better moving forward. David, thanks so much for the time this morning. I appreciate your insights. Thank you very much. 
We'll take a short break, have some bottom of the hour news as well. We have some listener texts to read through about the nature of fudge, so that will be important. And in the second half of this hour, Ruth Kramer will join us. We'll turn our attention to some of the global headlines and some of how Christians are being treated globally and what we can do here in this country. Well, if you've been with us a bit this morning, you know it's National Fudge Day, and uh, Paul Perot and I here in studio are having a bit of a conflict. And after listening to David and this... There's no um, conflict here. You're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not listen to our first guest this morning, Paul Perot? He's he was talking about intellectual okay? honesty and humility. We can learn from one another. I'm not entirely <laughs> clear what I can learn from you yet this morning, but I'm sure there's something there. However, as we do, we do learn from our listeners who have a vast array of knowledge about fudge. And Rosella wrote in this morning saying, Peter... My family engaged in a 20-year experiment in keeping fudge from sugaring. My father was a chemist. Basically, you use techniques opposite of growing crystals. Add a little corn syrup so it's not a pure solution. And be careful not to seed it with a spoon with sugar crystals and allow it to cool quickly. I was able to parlay this knowledge with my fourth grade son into a one-night science project on the concentration of sugar and the elevation of boiling point. This is amazing. It included samples of candies made at softball, fudge, hardball, taffy, soft crack, suckers, and hard crack, hard candy. The project got second place for the whole school. As Susie Larson says, if you don't like dogs, it's because you haven't found the right one. I think it is that way with fudge. I hope someday you find the right one. Rosella, uh, you Thank are... Thank you, Rosella. You are creating some dissonance in my mind, in my heart, and in my spirit, and I'm going to have to reflect a little bit more on this, and maybe I'll come to a different conclusion by the end of the show. Thanks for the great text. Up next, we've got Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News, and we're going to talk a little bit about some anti-conversion laws happening globally as some countries are clamping down on Christianity. Now, I'm definitely no fortune teller, but I can always predict when pain will appear in the life of parents. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After several decades of working with parents and teens, imminent pain has become an easy thing for me to spot. It happens anytime a mom or dad confronts foolish thinking or disagrees with their child's opinion, or when a parent needs to reestablish their authority, expose wrong motives, or limit or restrict their teens. But while these things may be painful, they're absolutely necessary to help teens grow and mature. Do you avoid discipline because you know it'll be painful? Don't let that keep you from doing your job. The discomfort will soon pass, and someday your efforts will be deeply rewarded. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. It is about 23 minutes before the top of the hour, and that intro means that Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News will be joining us. You know her voice. She's on here regularly talking about some of the ways Christians are being impacted globally and how we can sort of lift our eyes to see the bigger story of which we are a part. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. How are you? Well, it's great to hear your voice again. It's been a bit, and I wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for some conversations off air where you helped set Paul Perot straight about his no, his, no, his love no, of fudge. No, so, Ruth, no. as we've been talking about National Fudge Day today, and, and Paul and I are in this ongoing dispute, you've had some helpful advice about this. So what is your perspective on fudge, Ruth? Oh, do you really want to have this conversation now? I, no, no. no we, well, just, just, but you just help me out, Ruth. Which side of the equation do you fall on? Because we, we trust your judgment and your wisdom, Ruth. I'm not a big fan of fudge. Thank you. 
Thank you, Ruth, for saying that. It, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to have a Hebrews 10 journey here where we're supposed to be meeting with other believers, you know, and, and, and spurring one another towards love and good deeds. So thank you for doing that for me <laughs> this morning on the Fudge Conversation. Hey, there's a lot to get to in terms of some of the headlines. And Nigeria has been a place that has been uh, unstable for quite some time. And in that instability, people of faith really do get um, treated horribly just by some of the political power power plays that are going on there, specifically Christians. So take us into the scene a bit in terms of what's happening. Well, you know, if, if you, since we've been talking about Nigeria this year, uh, they've had an extraordinarily violent year. Um, 1,400 Nigerian Christians have been murdered, and at least 2,000 have been abducted within the last four months, and that's according to Voice of the Martyrs Canada. Um, so you, you see that uh, the Christians are a religious minority that feels extremely vulnerable, and they're sort of in the nexus of crosshairs between four different entities that really just want to remove the Christian voice from uh, any of the dialogue that's happening in Nigeria. So you've got the Islamic State, West African province, you've got the Islamic State, Boko Haram, you've got rebel groups that are involved with the the, the desire to uh, remove the Christian influence, and you have the Fulani herdsmen. So you've got four different entities that are really coming at uh, the Christians, and they're feeling the pressure. Um, it, there's This is significant. But also, you know, you've got some infighting between these other groups so that um, nobody really knows what's happening with regard to the ongoing insurgency in terms of success in uh, trying to quell that. And in fact, because they, the Nigerians haven't really seen a lot of change, um, they demonstrated against the president so the, within the last couple of weeks. And um, the demonstrations have gotten larger, more vocal, and somewhat violent. So police have actually had to try to break these major protests up uh, with tear gas and with some of the riot control uh, methods because people are very upset that their country is not secure. Um, so you've got this kind of a situation on the one side, and then you've got uh, the Islamic State, West West Africa province, and uh, Boko Haram fighting each other. And in fact, recently, uh, we're, we're talking like end of May, um, uh, Islamic State, West Africa province went after the leader of Boko Haram to try to force him to accept the leadership of ISWAP. And instead of agreeing to do that, he allegedly committed suicide. So the question here is, is Boko Haram without a leader? Um, what does that change? Is the Boko Haram going to join ISWAP now because it's leaderless? And uh, and really nobody knows the answer to those questions because they're still trying to confirm whether or not Boko Haram is actually leaderless. It, it's a very complicated kind of a situation. And when we talk to Voice of the Martyrs about what's happening there, what they basically say is, yes, it's complicated. Yes, believers need us to be praying that they remain bold in their witness and faith. Um, and regardless of what they find out with uh, Boko Haram and Abu Bakr Shakao and whether or not he's actually alive, um, nothing's really going to change as far as how many groups are going to be targeting Christians. Um, 
targeting them for uh, removal because they are assumed to be too connected to the West, because they are not Muslim, because of so many other things that are going on here. Uh, and, and so we just want to continue to lay this out in front of you and say, join us in praying for the body of Christ in Nigeria, for ministries that are active in this area, um, because they're just, uh, they're, they are taking their lives in their own hands when they walk out the front door and say, I'm going to take the gospel to my neighbors. I think when you describe those kinds of circumstances, Ruth, that uh, calls to mind a recent experience where my wife Hallie and I went down into the city of Minneapolis that has seen so much unrest over the past 12 to 18 months. And uh, it, w- it was an unsettling experience because this what was a beautiful city and is trying to once again gain its footing um, it is still in a place where you might see some barbed wire and you're going to see some plywood um, being nailed up into some of the windows and in the doorways. And it's a little bit of a ghost town. And, and it's unsettling when you walk around, when you're in the midst of that unrest. And and as I reflect on what you're saying, that kind of unrest that we experienced was ma- just a fraction, a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of unrest that's going on in another country. And what's what's compelling to me when you talk about believers in Nigeria is they are walking in the midst of such profound unrest, and yet there's a courage in them to want to shine light in the midst of that unrest. I confess that when when I was walking in just a little window of that, it made me sort of want to duck, run, and hide, as opposed to finding the courage. Who who are these fellow believers, these brothers and sisters, Ruth, that, that walk in the midst of such profound unrest, and yet their desire is to shine light in the midst of it? They're believers who've been growing because nobody walks into a situation and feels ready to take on that kind of challenge. Mm. But these challenges and the pressures that that they face now, they have been growing into. They have been walking with Christ through these kinds of things, and their faith has been growing as a result of that. Um, I think if you talk to anybody who's had significant trial in their lives and you look at them on, on this side of the trial and you're thinking, wow, what a what a believer, you know, what a what a huge um, hero to look up to. Uh, when you talk to them, they would tell you that they didn't start the journey where they are right now. Mm. They grew into that and they've seen God's fingerprints along the way and they've seen those Ebenezers along the way and they're reminded constantly in their journey that this far God has brought them. And it is a constant uh, reminder to us that our faith grows as we walk in difficulty and that we are to walk in the the alongside the body of Christ as they they struggle through this. Um, we are to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and laugh with those who laugh and continue to lift up the body of Christ that is under pressure because when we pray for others, that really sinks their their plight, their uh, situation into our hearts, and we begin to uh, to resonate more with what they deal with. Well, and I think we end up in those prayers too, Ruth. We end up feeling a bit connected with our brothers and sisters globally. If we just even take a moment to pause before we enter into that prayer and and try to at least imagine what it might be like for them to be waking up that that morning to put on their shoes, to walk out their front door, to, to see what they see, we begin to be knit together in a different kind of way as, as a global community of believers that does transcend our national boundaries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love, we'll take a short break. When we come back, Ruth, let's uh, talk through some of the headlines going on in Pakistan as well as in India, because there's uh, some interesting blasphemy laws going on in Pakistan, but a couple was released from um, their imprisonment at that point. And in India, we see the tightening of anti-conversion laws as well. So stay with us. More to come with Ruth Kramer for Mission Network News.
Welcome back to the show. Chatting with Ruth Kramer. And Ruth, right now, you are starting day one of vacation, from what I, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to start day one on vacation, but I wound up actually doing an interview with a believer in Iran about an hour ago, and then I'm I'm talking to you guys. Well, that's a great start to your vacation, Ruth. It should feel like a holiday to be in studio <laughs> with us. It's great to have your perspective globally. What were you talking about with this person from Iran? Uh, the presidential election that's going to be on Friday, um, and what's at stake really uh, in that situation. Um, you know, unfortunately, if you've been following this situation at all, you realize that over 500 presidential candidates have been eliminated from the ballot and that the Guardian Council has handpicked seven um, candidates for president for people to vote on. But they're all hardliners and there's nobody in there who's a, 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 at least a moderate. Um, so it's really going to be more of the same. And Iran's people are not very happy about that. But because social media has been clamped down and actually shut down, uh, they're trying to prevent people from being able to protest. They're trying to prevent a lot of different things because people are not happy. Hmm, interesting. I'd love to hear more on that in the in the weeks to come. Turning our attention to a place pretty close to Iran, that being Pakistan, we see a pretty interesting headline coming here that a couple was sentenced to death for alleged text messages in 2014 blaspheming against the prophet Muhammad. And of course, a lot of people get in trouble when their private texts are read. We've seen some scandals be unleashed in our culture, but it's usually around texts that are distinctly immoral in character. But in this case, something different was going on and they were sentenced to death for it. But there's been some updates on this story. So maybe take us into the story a bit, but then give us some of the updates recently. Sure. Well, the couple is Shafquat and Shagufta. That's we're we're giving them pseudonyms, but that's what we're calling them. And uh, they've been basically in and out of courts trying to uh, defend themselves against this blaspheming uh, charge. And it's extremely difficult to do so in Pakistan just because the courts seem to be stacked against uh against anyone who's trying to defend themselves uh, with this kind of a situation. However, uh, our, our friends at FMI tell us that uh, that the, the court threw out the charges, that the case is basically uh, baseless. Um, the thing that was interesting here is that our, our contact knows this couple personally. And uh, given everything that's, that's happened, this, it, from the get-go, this was a trumped-up kind of a case, and, and that it made it as far as it did speaks to how difficult it is to defend yourself against a blasphemy charge. So these text messages uh, that were alleged against the couple here that where they blasphemed the, the prophet Muhammad, that it's very interesting because neither uh, neither couple, neither of them, uh, the man or the woman, can read or write. And it would be very difficult for them to put a text message together because of that situation. But also, the messages were written in English, and that's a language that neither couple, neither one of them uh, know at all. So it seems pretty obvious that the case was uh, set up to frame the the couple and that indeed a neighbor framed them um, just to kind of settle a personal score and use the blasphemy law to do it. And this is a situation that many Christians face in Pakistan where somebody wants to settle a personal score and they claim blasphemy. And that person winds up being arrested and dragged through the courts for years on end. So 2014 is when this case came to light, and it's taken seven years for them to be actually getting some movement in their case to the point where the judge has actually uh, dismissed it because the, the evidence was flimsy. Was this in, uh, uh, maybe a different thing that, that happens in Pakistan? I would imagine that there's oftentimes trumped up charges against believers, and it's almost like a kangaroo court that functions from time to time. Was this unusual that somebody was, was let go and released? 
Um, yes, because the, the situation facing the judges, you know, with the hardliners, they would be very upset that a judge would take a stand like that. Uh, the couple would be facing uh, risk um, because there are going to be extremists who are upset that they were released on a blasphemy charge. Uh, just because they've been let out does not mean that they're going to be safe. Mm. Uh, and they can't necessarily return home because everybody knows where they live. And that puts them at risk of physical attack or even a fatwa, you know, where it's a death sentence over their heads. Um, even after the courts say you're innocent of the charge, it doesn't really matter because we've seen that happen over and over again. You know, Ozzie Bibi is a good yeah. example of what happened there. And, and the whole country blew up when the court threw her case out. And then they were trying to figure out how to get her out of the country because um, it was so risky for her to remain in the country. And when people got wind of that, you know, it was just demonstration after demonstration in all of the major cities and the death threats that were coming against the judges and the lawyers and the police that were trying to guard her and keep her safe and all of that stuff. So they had, you know, this is the kind of response you get from the extremists in Pakistan even though it looks like the case is over, the situation isn't over for Shafkat and Shagufta. So be praying for them. Also be praying for other believers who are still involved with gospel work in um, in Pakistan. Because anytime you have a case like this, if people can't get to their targets, then they take it out on the next best thing, which is another believer. And right in Pakistan's neighbor, too, we see in India that there's some headlines coming out that are worth noting in terms of tightening anti-conversion laws. I confess, Ruth, that I didn't know that there were uh, pretty significant anti-conversion laws by the, the leading religious parties, but Christians and Muslims now both alike are, are going to be cracked down on a little bit more. Yeah, this is one of those that was, I thought was really interesting. The anti-conversion uh, conversion amendment went into effect June 15th in, in um, Gujarat state. And this is like the seat of the BJP party, the pro-Hindu factions. Um, so this is where you're going to see a lot of the influence coming from BJP. Um, and what they really were trying to do was uh, strengthen a, I guess, a thing within the the, the uh, uh, anti-conversion law that prevents conversion by marriage. So there have been a lot of uh, uh, accusations that Muslim men will marry Hindu women to convert them to Islam. And they also accuse Christians of doing the same thing. So the, the, the law was actually meant to target Muslims and Christians, which are the religious minority in India. And it also clamps down a lot of other things um, within the, uh, the existing law. And it makes it pretty difficult for... Uh, for believers to defend themselves against that. At the same time, you had uh, a mm, an education act that went into effect as the anti-conversion bill uh, came into force. And it basically says that Christians and other religious minorities uh, no longer have control over who gets to hire their teachers and staff at a private Christian school. Uh, so that the, those people now will be chosen by the Central Recruitment Committee rather than by the schools themselves. And so the Christians and other religious minorities have, have really just launched a legal challenge against that law um, because they're trying to, uh, I guess, decrease state control over religious schools. And so any ministry that has Christian schools in Gujarat state is watching this uh, situation very carefully because you know, what the, the, the profound impact will mean on the other side, um, it, it could really uh, uh, threaten what ministry is being done within the Christian school setting. 
Mm. Ruth, I don't know if you can do this in about a minute or less or so, but one last headline as we're kind of working through all of these is we see some headlines coming out of Guatemala recently with Vice President Harris going down there and, and suggesting she is attempting to address the root causes of the migration that's happening. And there are some interesting things you noted in that. And about a minute or so, give us a little window into the situation. Well, basically, our partner AMG International is saying, yes, they, the people of Guatemala need hope. They You need to address the root causes of why people are trying to immigrate to the U.S. So you're talking poverty, you're talking gang violence, you're talking uh, lack of opportunity, you're talking lack of food. And AMG has been investing in Guatemala for some time. They do invest in small businesses. They they try to make sure that the funds that go into their Guatemalan ministry go right to the people instead of getting lost like what happens with government stuff where you just see thousands of dollars just disappear. So AMG has been working in child and youth development, discipleship, health care, uh, agriculture, small business, media evangelism, all this kind of stuff. And it's really all set to uh, trying to empower the body of Christ as well as to evangelize people and sharing the hope of Jesus Christ for transformation within the community, within the heart. Oh, I love it, Ruth. Thanks so much for talking us through some of these different headlines happening globally that impact us and our fellow brothers and sisters around the world. And thanks for starting your vacation with the two of us and all of the Faith Radio listeners. We really appreciate your diligence and your perspective from a global standpoint. Thanks for having me. We'll take a short break and wrap up this hour. We'll also preview hour two coming up next. I see Bill English is out in the green room. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the first conversation at the top of next hour related to some pretty interesting headlines in the labor market and how that's going to impact us as a nation and how it's going to impact even some of the future of our finances as a nation. So lots to come here in hour two coming up in just a little bit. I always enjoy talking to Ruth and how she lifts her eyes to see what's going on around the globe. I, it makes me think of a time in which uh, I was overseas and, and in a room that felt very uncomfortable and unfamiliar, and I didn't really know uh, how to proceed within the social environment. And another gentleman walked in the room from South Korea, uh, Korea, and we did not share anything in terms of language. He barely could speak English. I, of course, could speak no Korean, and yet he was a believer. And, and we felt for a moment, one, that our hearts were sort of knit together as we sat on the sofa in this flat in Scotland and uh, and made a connection as believers. And we certainly are connected to believers globally, whether or not we understand their experience, whether or not we share their actual experience as they walk out their doors each day. This is one big, beautiful community of faith that transcends national boundaries. And, and to be praying for our fr- fellow brothers and sisters that are experiencing quite a bit more hardship than we might uh, at certain times in their life is, I just think, an incredibly helpful practice. We don't always know how our prayers work and, and where they work, but they do indeed work. Well, coming up here at the start of next hour, we'll be joined by Bill English, who talks about uh, the intersection of Christianity and economics or Christianity and business, a lot of different topics and pretty interesting changes coming to the labor market that are going to impact us and our children into the future. So catch his wisdom next at the top of hour two on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.